This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. The fear is that a contractor is not as invested in a jurisdiction as an actual employee would be. Being a contractor now, I, I don't agree with that. You know, and granted, I, I do. I, you know, I, I do the contract work because I get paid to do it. It's great, but you know, if you do this kind of work, it takes it takes a person with a certain mindset. You know what I mean? It's it's one thing to say you're an emergency manager, but to actually do this thing and live this and be able to spend days upon days in the EOC or do whatever. It takes a mindset. Whether or not you're a contractor or a government employee, you're going to have the same mindset at the end of the day. Hi, and welcome to the EM Weekly Show. And this is your host, Todd DeVos speaking. And today we are talking to Tony Alexio from the Triage Group about consulting, the UASI, and more. Tony has a vast range of experience. And on that, I will let Tony tell you his story. Before we get into the uh, interview, I want to invite you to the second of the EM Weekly's webinars for 2019. And our webinar series, it is much different than the others that you may have attended. You know, we do not sell anything, and they're, but they are sponsored and are sponsored by the Emergency Management Leaders Conference, uh, the EMLC, and by our long-time sponsor, Titan HST. This is going to be happening on Thursday, March 28th at 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Pacific. And we are bringing some of the biggest names in emergency management technology to talk about what's up and coming in our landscape. Join us for the Emerging Technologies for Emergency Management webinar on March 28th. You can see the link in the show notes below. Speaking about the EMLC, there is still time to get your discounted uh, tickets to the conference. You have until February 28th to take advantage of getting the $100 off. Yep, that's one whole C-note you keep in your pocket. And if you're a student, you get $200 off the price of the admission for the entire thing. So join EM Weekly in Phoenix, Arizona on May 29th to 30th at the Arizona Grand Hotel. Now on to the interview. Hey, I'm happy to have uh, Tony Alexio here with me today. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about what Tony does and his company. So Tony, welcome to EM Weekly. Thanks a lot, Todd. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, you know, I'm actually a listener of your podcast, so it's, it's pretty exciting to actually be on it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So, Tony, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in what you do. Uh, emergency management. You know, it, it's funny because it's kind of a field that that people just kind of fall into. It seems in most cases, you know, no one, no one ends up in fifth grade saying I want to be an emergency manager. Right. Like, yeah, I had that moment. You know, um, there was the movie Volcano back in the mid '90s with Tommy Lee Jones. You must. I'm sure maybe you've seen it. Maybe not. It was. Uh, I think Helen Hunt was in it. I don't remember. It was a classic. I think it was a volcano blowing up 
in Los Angeles. It was like yes. lava flows underground or something. Yeah. Yes, so I'm yes, watching yes. this movie and I'm seeing the Tommy Lee Jones character and, you know, the emergency manager, every resource at his fingertips. Everyone's listening to what he said. He saves the day, you know, classic American movie, big happy ending and Tommy Lee Jones is the hero. Walk out of there. I'm thinking to myself, damn, I want to be an emergency manager. I want to be Tommy Lee Jones. Like, all right, this is cool. So I, I end, end up in the, in the field. Uh, I learned very quickly that it was a movie and that's not how actually emergency management actually works, but it was still fine. Um, you know, no, yeah, I, I remember walking into my first job and myself, you know, where's, uh, where's that giant command center? Where's this? Where's that? And people looking at me is like, yeah, no, we don't have the funding for such things. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's what it is. I'm sure you've heard the same stories too in places you've been at, but you know, my first, uh, my first gig was a company called All Hands Consulting. And, uh, it was a partnership between a guy named Steve Davis uh, here in the D.C. area and his partner, Rick Lavallis, out in Seattle. Both really good guys. Um, Steve was the business side of the house, and, and, and Rick was, was definitely the hardcore emergency manager. He, he was at the Mount St. Helens. He was the emergency manager when Mount St. Helens blew up in 1980. Uh, he trained under emergency manager Paul Lacey Souter in Tennessee, which ended up being the head of FEMA for a while. Uh, so he had a pretty good pedigree. And, uh, and I was fresh out of school, and, and I was. I was they yeah, picked me up in D.C., and uh, it was a company about God, maybe four people at that time, five people. It was like a small, small company. And we ended up getting this job with, at the time, something called the UASI, the Urban Area Security Initiative. It was 2004. I had no idea what the hell that was. Of course, you know, when they're talking about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's all about the UASI. had no clue. So, like, you know, <laughs> quick Google search, and you realize it's a funding program and this and that, and, you know, Homeland Security cash and what have you. It's like, all right. So we get the job of being the UASI administrator for the city of Miami. Which uh, for the Miami UASI, which actually covered a four-county area from Key West all the way up, the, up, the, up to the Palm Beaches. So we're sitting around the conference table. Like I said, we're like a four or five-person company, and they kind of look around. They land on me and said, "You know what? You're the only single guy on staff. You're the cheapest guy to relocate. You're going to Miami. Okay, worst place to go than Miami, I suppose." <laughs> so you know, back of my car, and then down I went, all the way down to Miami. We opened up a. Our initial office was in, was in, we rented a room and I can't remember what the hotel was, the name of the hotel was, that in Coconut Grove. Uh, and we began working that. And it was, uh, you know, initially it was trying to get the grant set up and trying to get money moving and stuff like that. But we came to realize very quickly that the city of Miami needed at the time a lot of help in emergency management, a lot of planning work, a lot of training work, a lot of exercise work. And, you know, the, the bosses would come down every, every, you know, once every, every couple of weeks, down there for a few days. And, as time grew on, as time went on, we were down there for a good five, six years. Uh, you know, the, 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 the project expanded. That's where I got my real first taste of emergency manager, not just the response aspects of it, but, um, you know, just the, the, the sometimes the lack of resources, the resistance from elected officials you see sometimes, the resistance from, from other people within a, a jurisdiction that look at emergency management and say, well, why do we have you? We have police, we have fire. Uh, Stuff that you never really thought about that would actually come, that definitely wasn't Volcano. You know, Tommy Lee Jones never had to fight for money from the city government, I guarantee you. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, that's kind of what it was. Uh, and it ended up being my, my second school in emergency management. You know, it's uh, the amount of stuff I learned, especially with working with Steve and Rick, was, was amazing because they had this knack because we were a small company. But, you know, at the time, I'm like, God, I'm maybe like 25, 26 years old, maybe. Now I'm like, yeah, 26, 27, that neighborhood somewhere. And, uh, you know, you, you come out of school, you have this idea of what you're going to do, how things are going to work, and you get re a reality check really quick. Uh, Steve was pretty, was pretty standard with this, like, no, 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 you got to, you know, you got to forget the textbook, you got to do it a certain way. Rick's whole thing was like, you know what, you're going to be an emergency manager, you got to figure it out by yourself, you got to skin your knees. 
So you know what? You want to sit on EOC and you want to, you know, open up every shelf you have and use all your resources in the first hour, up to you. Go for it. See what happens. And, you know, they would let me do stuff like that in a mock situation, of course, and it would obviously go sideways, you know, within, you know, an hour, the, you know, the, the place would be level, which it shouldn't have been if you did it properly. Uh, so I learned a lot on how to do it. Um, and also, it was also the period of time where it was just, it was, I remember there was a series of hurricanes that hit South Florida, among them Katrina, Wilma, Rita. It was that year. It was the year, it was the period of time when Katrina, I think it was like 2005 or six. I can't remember. Katrina In 2005, was. yeah. 2005, and it was and, and 2004, 2006 was was a huge period of hurricanes. It was just a lot of hurricanes running through there. So it was, uh, you know, we we were we were force multipliers in the Miami EOC. Uh, so I was I was their acting planning chief for a while, and at times I was their deputy emergency manager because they just they just didn't have the staff at the time. They would jump in, and, and it, was, it was trial by fire. You know, and it's one thing to learn emergency management classroom. Like, I, you know, I'm from I'm from up north. Hurricanes were something I would see on TV. You know what I mean? Right. right. And I would look through one of these, and it's like, you know, you see the storm rolling in, and you know, you don't really know what's what's good, what you expect. And the first couple were small ones. It was category one, category ten. I was like, okay, a couple of trees down, a couple of roofs damaged. We, we did this okay. Um, you know, activations were for a day or two. It wasn't anything huge. I remember though the year of Katrina, uh, 2005, and it was Katrina and it was uh, Wilma with the two hurricanes that were that were huge. Katrina wasn't very big in Miami, although I do remember we're sitting in the EOC, which is the Miami Police Headquarters, it's about two o'clock in the morning, and I remember when I was typing up a sit rep, and I'm watching it on the radar. This this barely a Category One hurricane is just off the coast of just off Biscayne Bay, and I'd never heard this sound in my life, and the thing rolled really right over the EOC. And it was it was it was a tropical, a strong tropical storm, barely category one. But it was like the building that we were we were we were underground, we were one floor underground. And honestly, God, it sounded like a train rolling over your head. And like, what the hell is that? And I look at the radar. I'm like, that was literally Katrina. I'm like, okay, so we survived this, okay. And of course, you know, a day later, we see it got to the Gulf Coast, and tracks of it going out to New Orleans, but it hadn't blown it up yet. Right. We look at this thing. I'm like, that's not going to be good news. The next day, we woke up, it's like a category five. It's like, holy crap. You know, what happened there? And then we all know what happened in, in New Orleans about a week later. Right. right. Um, but the one that affected me the most was Hurricane Wilma, which is, uh, I want to say maybe it was 06, maybe the year later. And it was, uh, it came in off the Gulf Coast. It made, made, made landfall in Naples, Florida as a Category 3, but it went right over the Everglades. So it didn't have plenty of moisture and it didn't really weaken. Uh, my wife, when I met down in South Florida, was, was born and raised in Boca Raton. So, you know hurricane veteran apparently and knew everything there was no about hurricanes. We were living in a small apartment north of north of Miami. And her parents were up in Boca Raton. They had one of these, you know, hurricane hoarded houses. It was the place to be for such things. And we look at this thing, I'm like, look, I gotta work for you tonight. I'm gonna be I'm not gonna be Ohio. You probably should go to your parents' house instead of staying in the little rickety apartment that we were living in. No, oh, no, I'll be fine. I've been through this. What do you know? I'm like, okay, what do I know? That's fine. So I get a call about one thirty in the morning as the hurricane is about bearing down on the west side of Miami. It's like I'm going to jump in the car to go to my parents. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not in the middle of a hurricane. Now you got to ride it out. Get the bathtub and sit there, kind of thing. So she was fine at the end of the day. But it was, uh, I remember getting out of the EOC the next day, and then the trees, the damage we saw was amazing around, around you know, the north side of, of Dade County. Um, but then was what was, for me, was was the actual, actual seeing a recovery process in action, which I'd never seen before. Um Really, truthfully, outside of outside of a textbook or even or even even you know even an ICS class, whatever the case may be, you know, we had no electricity in the area for for ten days. There was no you know the the, the water system had been overwhelmed, so there was actually no potable water for a couple of days. So they got things up and running, and, and trucks were coming in. Uh, line up for foods, line up for gasoline, and it just you know the you know, streets were 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 impassable for days, and you know FEMA would be coming in, and it was 
it was a, it was a solid 10 days of this. And, you know, just seeing that was like, all right, you know what? Fine. I'm not Tommy Lee Jones. I'm thinking this from two or three, four years earlier. <laughs> I'm not Tommy Lee Jones here, but this is actually pretty cool stuff. Cool. Cool. As much as actually seeing it kind of return to normal. And the part we were playing as emergency managers, bringing this back to normal and the, the interplay between resources and the region and this and that, which, you know, and in Miami, it's a fairly comp, the Miami U.S. was a fairly compact area, thankfully. It, this is, it was a lot of population, a thin strip along the coast. Uh, you know, the Keys were pretty sparsely populated, but once from south of Miami to about north of Fort Lauderdale, it was a pretty solid chunk of population. And then the, the preparation that the counties and, and the cities themselves had, as small as they were and as, as some of them as resource poor as they were, was, was amazing to me how they pulled it all together. It was, it was, at the end of the day, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was good guys, and our, our customers at the city of Miami were great people, and I'm still in touch with them, and I, I you know, talk about them very fondly. So there, there right. was, it was a lot of fun, but I learned a lot. Let's, um, talk, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about the UASI and, and that process. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, I was part of the UASI up here in Orange County. <coughs> Excuse mm-hmm. me. Uh, and we had a thing called the Urban Area Working Group, which kind of oversaw yes. the, the spending of the monies. So, I, and I just kind of want to um, double back on this for a little bit. So you're sitting mm-hmm. on the UASI as, as a contractor um, and, and you're overseeing the funds that are coming in uh, from the, the federal government through this UASI program. And in the early days of the UASI, you're right. It was a lot of fun. We bought a lot of cool, cool oh, stuff. Yeah, there was more money than God. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> right. was, uh, yeah. You know, and then, and then, as the as now it's getting a little bit tighter and, and the, the the search for the money for the Uwasi money is a little bit tighter. But one of the things that yeah. that I think that what we could have done better back then is really figured out a really good funding source for emergency management outside of buying all the cool toys. You know, oh, um, I agree. And and why didn't we do that? You know, because I think we're just excited about having the money. To be honest with you. And, you know, it's, uh, we had, you know, in, in, in the Miami's, if I recall correctly, I believe at its peak was a $25 million a year. Uh, and I could be wrong. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but $25 million sticks out my brain at its peak, uh, UIC. Uh, that's a good chunk of change when it comes with, the, you know, you only spend it on certain things in certain, you know, certain ways, you know, they're just like, well, let's, let's do everything we can. Once we, you know, you can only have so many exercises and so many training sessions. We're going to the point where, you know, we, we were training, you know, People living on the street on ICS, it was good to be at that point. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we could find. You know, it was, it was, you know, we had, Miami had every plan on demand, you know, at that point. And it was, it was set up. There was still money to be spent. Um, and so in its heyday, it was, you know, well, what do we need? You know, so that's why you have like, you know, you're about these places in Kansas where the population of 200 people, they've got like an armed personnel carrier. You had to spend the money. It was right. a use it or lose it. Because if you didn't use the money, as you know, next year you wouldn't get less money. And you didn't want that. Right, right, right. So, it was, it was the idea of spending it. Now, why it didn't get directed into more emergency management per se, more stuff? I don't know. South Florida did a little bit, actually. You know, uh, Miami-Dade County got a new AOC on that. Um, in Fort Lauderdale, they had Broward County, had, they had some, some, some emergency management funds coming in. But 90% of the money for emergency management was, was on practical stuff. It was planning, it was training, it was exercise. You know, it wasn't generally spent on, you know, on, on facility hardening and stuff like that. Uh, which is the routes that police and fire departments generally took, you know, getting more equipment, getting more stuff like that. Um, I wish I had an answer for you. I don't know why it didn't go the direction it did. Quite frankly, I think like with every other jurisdiction, the police and fire, you have the loudest voice right. <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, an emergency manager tends to be the smallest group, and uh, which is unfortunate because you probably have, not to diminish what police and fire do, but during an emergency, it's, it's a very important job. 
uh, emergency management, you know, uh, being the coordinating point for everything. The difference is that we do the coordinating point during an emergency. And the argument is the police and fire do it every day. You know, I don't know if I totally buy that entirely, that, that argument entirely, but it is what it is, you know. And these days now with the way you watch the funding, it's kind of a moot point anyway. Right. So, right. so I mean, and it kind of goes uh, back to the, to the other part of it that we're talking about too, is one was, uh, you know, educating elected officials on exactly what the emergency manager is and what their role in a disaster really is. And then mm-hmm. public education on what emergency management is, because, you know, when you say you're a firefighter, you got a uniform and a big red truck you drive around. You say you're a police officer, you got, you know, a uniform and a, and a cruiser that you're cruising mm-hmm. around in. Uh, when you say you're an yeah. emergency manager, you're like, oh, well, what's that? And it, t- <laughs> it takes a little bit. And to that's explain. in some jurisdictions. One thing I'll hand in Miami was that what, because it was a, it was a hurricane prone zone. And I'm sure it's, you know, it's not the same in Orange County, California with earthquakes. So not as much, don't get as many earthquakes as South Florida sees hurricanes, at least in that period of time. Uh, the public had understanding of what an emergency manager was and what role they played. They may have mistaken them for a firefighter. Because within the city of Miami, emergency manager actually was a component of the fire department. They were, they were co-located. They weren't independent. Uh, so that worked to their advantage, I suppose, ultimately. Uh, Broward County, Florida, however, they were completely independent of the emergency manager office. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, it's, it's their public education program, which gets good, bad, you know, as, as, as it's not great to say, but the number of hurricanes helped their cause, truthfully, right, right, and getting awareness out. You know what I mean? When, when on a given hurricane season in 2005, as we're getting with one hurricane, you've got two more spinning off the coast of Africa. Uh, people are going to pay attention. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of what it is. Now, conversely, in a place like the National Capital Region, where you know, in the Washington D.C. area, where I ended up, emergency management is not quite as high profile. It gets overshadowed by a lot of different things up here. Um, you know, because you also have the federal apparatus, which is huge here, you know what right. I mean, which overshadows anything any local jurisdiction does. Um, but in a place like Miami, no, EM had a, had a pretty decent role, actually. You know, I was, I was, compared to what other places I've seen, actually pretty big. I think one of the things that I, I always see with uh, emergency managers, and I've, I've talked about this in some other episodes as well, but regarding where do they sit um, at the table really drives who knows who they are. You know, I think that's kind Absolutely. of, yeah. Especially when it comes and to. And that's one thing I'll give, that's one thing I'll give the national capital region. And, you know, my, my second stop after Miami was up here and I ended up with, with the Montgomery County emergency manager. So Montgomery County is the county immediately Northwest of Washington, D.C. They had the, the council of governments here as is very, was, was the idea of regionalism was big. Now the UASI in, in South Florida was, you know, it was a four county, one state area. The difference here in the, in the national capital region, the UASI was a three, it was a area that covered, you know, seven counties across three states. So you had three SAAs, you had, you know, three of everything pretty much. You know what I mean? You had three, three state governments that had to work with in here. So regionalism was, was paramount. Right. And the council of governments up here created what's called, you know, had, had created within the council, within, I guess, the, the, the UAG equivalent here, um, which called the, uh, it was, it was a, CA, a group of, of county executive officers. I'm sure they, were, they were the top tier of, of the, the UASI, of the UASI, of what oversaw UASI up here. But within that, the number of subgroups, there was, you know, there was a police committee, a fire committee. There was an emergency managers committee, which was actually quite, you know, had, had a decent amount of power. Mostly because it was the, the emergency managers that, that were in the national capital region. And I was the exception to this rule where they, they had been there for, for years and had worked their way through police service and fire service. And they were a known quantity. So based on their own reputation, they were carrying emergency management within the, within the national capital region to the forefront, to a solid seat at the table, where they actually did have a voice on funding. They actually did have a voice on how money was going to be allocated. And because you're not dealing with, in, in the University, unlike, unlike the Miami area, 
It's not two counties battling it out. It's Virginia battling with Maryland. Right. You have two. It's it's a different dynamic up here in that regard. And I'm sure New York City they have the same thing because the U.S. the main U.S. is as I recall, and they cut it down to a little bit. It used to encompass like New Jersey, New York, and part of Connecticut, as I recall. I could be wrong, but I think that's what it was in the early days. You know, I think they had a different. I'm sure they had a similar dynamic. Up there. I think a lot of that with New York had to do with the uh, with the Port Authority. So being part of that, yeah, which is, yeah, which is really touches those through the the tri uh, tri state area for sure. Mm-hmm. You last year, yeah, the Tate Day was great. Sadly, it's kind of you know, it's it's you know the the the, the Great Recession came rolling through, a few other things came rolling through, and those ones got diminished. Governments changed, what have you, and that's what it is. Right. Uh, you know, it's been pretty stable. At least around here, it's been pretty stable. See, generally, it's been pretty funding has been pretty stable, but it's it's no longer become. You know, when you when the last members rolled out. In 04 to 09, people were excited because they were like, well, some real money coming in. And that's what it was. And a lot of smaller jurisdictions, that was your life, but lifeblood for emergency management. And that's not the case anymore. No one's relying on this glassy money anymore. It's, 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 a, it's an extra nice thing that's there, but it's not the end all or be all anymore. Right. You know, and well, that's because also you only buy so many APCs. I was going to say some of the issue too with some of the Iwasi funds in some of the jurisdictions, you know, there was some. I don't want to call it abuse, but maybe misuse of what the funding really was for. You know, I, mm-hmm. I won't, I won't say who it is, but you, you could probably do some Google search and find out pretty quickly. But there was a certain fire department back East that bought popcorn machines for all of their fire department, for all their stations. And they said it was for public outreach. And that's not really what yeah, the, I do remember hearing about that actually. Right. Uh, and I, yeah, I like, I actually, I don't actually remember who it was to be honest with you. Uh, oh. But I do remember hearing about that way back when. But yeah, that's going to be the case too. There was one. There was a place in the Midwest where they were spending U.S. money on some museum or something like that. Right, right. You know what I mean. And thankfully, this stuff gets caught and the money gets straightened out. And you know, whatever the consequences are, they're doled out. But yeah, it's a shame that, that there are cases like that. But sadly, you're going to see that everywhere, no matter you know, in every in every industry, not even emergency management, they're always going to have people trying to pull a fast one. You know? No, you're right. You're you're right. Like I said, I don't think it was. I, I don't want to say it was. It wasn't illegal. I just think that they were just misusing yeah. what it what it really meant for in the idea of what public outreach money was for. But that's 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 either here nor there. And you're right. But it just what oh, yeah. you saw though was or was the Uwasis that were not being good stewards of their money were the ones that when they looked at chopping Uwasis, those are the ones that went first. And then the, the oh ones, yeah, absolutely right. And the ones that are sticking or staying around, like the Orange County one, for instance, uh, we've always been good stewards of the Uwasi money here. Spent on what you're supposed to do, doing the the good investment justification forms, you know, following those things to the to the T pretty much, and uh, and that's why we're that's why we are rewarded with still being a Uwasi yeah. area today. Hey, let's just take about uh, sixty seconds here and listen to our sponsors. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here. So please reach out to them. Tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. The Uwasis that were 
not being good stewards of their money were the ones that when they looked at choppy and uasis, those are the ones that went first. And then the, the Oh yeah, that, absolutely. Right. And the ones that are sticking or staying around, like the Orange County one for instance, uh, we've always been good stewards of the Uasi money mm-hmm. here, spending on what you're supposed to do doing the good the good investment justification forms, you know, following those things to the to the T pretty much. And uh, and that's why we're that's why we are rewarded with still being a Uasi yeah. area today. Absolutely. That's a big role. And the size of the jurisdiction is a big role too. You know, during the heyday, I remember Fort Lauderdale had pitched a fit that they were, their needs were different than Miami and they should have their own Uasi. And they had the, they had a, they hired a lobbyist. They had, I don't remember who the congressman was that area. I took it for Congress. And uh, I want to say it was 2007 or eight where they split the Uasi, much to Miami chagrin because while they didn't split the money either, Miami didn't lose some money that went to Fort Lauderdale. And then 2009 rolls around, and you know, watch money starts to dry up. But yeah, places like Fort Lauderdale were the first ones to get one of the first ones to get cut because it's like, okay, you know. And there was for a little while there, they had like I don't even know how many cities. It was like you know, Omaha, Nebraska was you watch it for a while there. <laughs> right, right. It was you know, it was uh, you know, and I remember it was originally it was it was ten cities. It was what it was New York, D.C., Houston, oh, L.A., right. Chicago, um, Dallas, Miami, and Atlanta. I think was it. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Those were the originals, and then from there, as more money became available, the stuff expanded, but. You know, realistically, you know, New York City, the D.C. area is a far more target-rich area than, you know, Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> you right. We need that, you know, at least not, not for what, what UASI was meant for. So, well, it's, yeah. it's funny too because like it, like looking at the way the different Uwasis do things like the Los Angeles Uwasi is run completely different from the way we run it in Orange County with the regionalization mm. and the collaboration that's there and I, I found that really kind of funny when you talk to people in LA County and they go oh yeah well LA doesn't really play too well because they don't share their money but it's they don't you know it's a different just a different mindset I think yeah it is it's just it's a big city mindset I've heard the same thing for New York City you know, whoever the emergency manager was at a point in time, apparently, and I don't know this for a fact, it's just, you know, second, third hand uh, stories, was whatever the region complained about. And he's like, you know what? We're New York. Deal with it or not. It's <laughs> kind of what it is. What are you going to do? Right, you know? right. So it, was, it was a very New York attitude. It's what it was. So yeah, true. So, that's, that's, that's it, so. so yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was fun times. Yeah, with, with the And again, it still is. It's still a factor, but it's not, it's not the factor that it used to be about 10 years ago. You know. So speaking so. of changes, you know, one of the conversations that mm-hmm. um, I was having with some people over dinner at the IAM conference um, over there in Grand Rapids, and mm-hmm. somebody made a bold statement, and I really think it's a bold statement, but started chewing on it for a little bit, and I started thinking maybe this might be true, and they're saying that emergency management, this is their statement, I won't say who it is again because I don't want to out mm-hmm. them, they said emergency management is going to move away from being um, – city-owned employees or municipal-owned employees to contractors for the most part. Do you think that's yeah. a true statement? I think to some degree it might be. Uh, it's, you know, it's in, in a lot of jurisdictions, it's easier to hire a contract than it is to hire new staff. You know, and we have we had that situation. I was with Montgomery County, and I said, I love Montgomery County. They're great guys there. Uh, the director there is a very close friend of mine. Uh, but it just, it's, government is government is what it is. And there's a process that you have to follow for hiring somebody for finding, you know, the funding and the, the, the job descriptions and this and that. It's, it's a process. What you have to do is you want to hire somebody full-time with benefits and everything. Hiring your contract, it's much, it's, it's much simpler. You know, you have the you have a, you know, a grand fund, you have the money aside, you put an RFP out, you say, I need a contractor or two for, you know, I need a, a junior planner for, for a year. And you can wrap that up within a month, usually. Whereas a three-month or four-month process in hiring new people, 
in an emergency management as, as, as a full employee in a government agency is a much more involved process. Um, that being said now, you know, and there's, and I've had people have spoken to me about this as well. I've had conversations about this as well, where it's the fear is that a contractor is not as invested in a jurisdiction as an actual employee would be. Being a contractor now, I, I don't agree with that. You know, and granted, I, I do, I, you know, I do the contract work because I get paid to do it. It's great. But, you know, if you do this kind of work, it takes, it takes a person with a certain mindset. You know what I mean? It's, it's one thing to say you're an emergency manager, but to actually do this thing and live this and be able to spend days upon days in an EOC or do whatever, it takes a mindset. Whether or not you're a contractor or a government employee, it's, you're going to have the same mindset at the end of the day. Um, good or bad, I guess the future will say at the end of the day, to be honest with you. But I, I do believe that it's going it's going much closer to a hybrid model, I think. I don't think it's going to ever be a point where it's privatized emergency management. I, I can't see that happening ever. But I do see contractors being playing a much larger role, uh, if for nothing else, for just cost savings, or for you know to be hired, you know, having a core ten-person office, for example, and supplementing as need be for a larger exercise or for a big plan or for you know an anticipated rough fire season, for example, or whatever the case may be. You know what I mean? Because it's also easier to to, to when the, when the work is ending to let those people go, versus a staff member, especially in government, they're there. So. Right, and I can, yeah, so I, can see, be, you know. I, I can see that ramping up easily for you know what's going on up in, in Northern California specifically when sixty four percent of your city's burnt to the ground, and you need to bring people in, and, and the people who live there are affected by that that uh, that mm-hmm. fire as well. I, I can really see the the usefulness of bringing in seasoned contractors to uh, to manage that um, as people are getting yeah. back on their feet. That makes sense. Absolutely. Well, you just need, quite frankly, in a place like Northern California right now, you just need the extra people. You need the help. I don't care how big your jurisdiction is and how many people you have working for you as full-time staff. At some point, you, you just need the help. You know, at some point, someone needs to sleep for a few hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you need someone to take over that position, the extra body. So something that's huge, yeah, absolutely. You know, when the hurricanes were rolling through Miami and my contracting kid, we were bringing people in, you know, people in from other, other projects we had across the country to help out down in Miami because we just needed the bodies. Uh, and that's one advantage of a contractor. You know, right. Get them in, get them out, and you know, you're not, you're not, they're not there after the emergency is over, where there really isn't any more work for them to do. You know, so and that makes sense because I mean, like realistically, if, if you if you do have a contract with a company, and then you know something goes sideways, you could ramp up additional staffing fairly quickly compared to begging for mutual aid people to come up to to help out. Absolutely. You know, and absolutely. And, and on Montgomery, I was a big, big uh, proponent of, of, of EMAC, which was, you know, it was great. And the region was fantastic. And not just the national capital region, but in Montgomery, you know, so we tapped into, into you know, the state of Maryland and then the Baltimore region. It was, it was, there was always resources available if we needed them. Um, but I've always had a cadre of contractors kind of in, 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 in my back pocket for that reason alone. But if, he, if you know, if I had a disaster in Montgomery, chances are they're probably having the same disaster in Baltimore. Right. Or, some, or they're affected by it. So they probably can't give me the 20 bodies I need. You know, they might be able to give me two or three. Or they might, you know, if I'm asked for a body, they might be like, well, you know what? I can't give you any. Can you give me four of yours? You know, so it's, it's, it's at that point, it's a battle of resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, you know, I reach into my, into my back pocket, pull out a couple of contractors, and I'm good to go for that period. I was good to go for that particular period of time. You know, like during, uh, we had a, it was a straight line wind event in Montgomery County. It's called the derecho. I had never heard that word before until it happened to us here. Um, and that was just, that was like a hurricane. It was something unreal. I, can't, I don't even know what, you know, the funny thing is we're watching the radar, this thing, the storm coming in. It's just a storm fan of the Midwest. 
and everyone's going over West Virginia, and the storm just kind of disappeared. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's good news. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever, maybe it's breaking up or something like that. Uh, Weather Service is like, nah, I don't think so, but we don't see it on the radar either anymore, so we'll see how it turns out. Thing gives us about an hour and a half later. But then the storm was so strong that it knocked out the weather monitoring system in West Virginia. Oh, jeez. There was nothing to pick up the storm with. Yeah, it was just like, it was, it was just, it, it obliterated. And I remember I was actually home. I was reading my, my oldest at the time. I was reading her bedtime story. It was about maybe, I don't know, eight o'clock or so. And out of nowhere, the windows just start rallying. I'm like, what the hell is this? So we get this, you know, power goes out. I remember I, the director gave me a call. I was like, yeah, we got to go. I'm like, well, obviously. So I'll see you there. I'll see you at the EOC. And that was, a, that was a two-week event. You know, power outages in the county were like 98%, and they were going to stay that way for a little while. Because yeah. uh, it wasn't just power lines went down. There was severe damage in the county. Um, at the time, we had a, we had a nine-person outfit in, in, our, in our emergency management department. Yeah, granted, we were pulling in people from transportation department and other departments in the county to help out. But, uh, you know, that was one of my big contractor events. <laughs> like, I just need the people. You know what I mean? After, you know, the fourth day sitting in the OC, you haven't been living on, you know, crappy sandwiches and you haven't showered. Like, I just, I just need like five hours. So, and that was, that was, that was one of those events. And even, you know, the re-removal situation afterwards, the windshield service, all that kind of stuff. It was just, it was a massive effort and it was just, it was required. So that's, that's, that's what we went to it. Walter wasn't going to help us at that point. They had the same storm. Right. You know, right. they were, they were in bad shape. They were in the same shape we were in. You know, same thing with D.C. Everyone was hurting there. That was a kind of a battle of contractors at that point in time. It was like, you know, who would you have the best relationship with? You're going to get the people, you know? Right. But it worked out, too. So, so tell, me, tell me a little bit about your, uh, your company and what you do right now. Well, the Treehouse Group, we've been, um, I've been with them for about two years or so. It's uh, primarily a technology group, and they brought me on to build out their Homeland Security University Management Practice, which I actually am, am having a lot of fun do- doing it because – we're not just looking at emergency management in the traditional sense. And while we do have clients, we do some planning, training, exercise, threat assessments, thyroids, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we have a, we, we, pretty, we, we can kind of take our technology roots and, and put it within emergency management where we can. Um, you know, one of our clients are trying to develop a, uh, help them develop an app that can map people out of their, out of their buildings, their facilities uh, during an emergency. Uh, be it an active shooter, be it a fire, be whatever the case may be. We're still a way away from from this thing actually being fully developed. But it's 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 stuff like that that we're, we're doing. And we're realizing, and I realized actually while working here, the importance of things like, you know, artificial intelligence and emergency management. Um, you know, technology as a whole and how I don't, it's not being utilized, I think, as, as much as it could be. You know, and emergency management's been at this for a while. And this is you know, the, uh, an EMS generation above us, for example, and then rightfully so because that's where they kind of that's where they've grown up with. You know, they 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 still believe in the old school, you know, whiteboard, you know, brute force stuff, which works as well, which works very well as it is. You know, Rick Lavalle over in, in All Hands, his whole thing was, you know, he didn't believe in computers. He's like, I have my stubby pencil, and I'm going to figure everything out there, and he did because that's what his generation did. And it was great, and it worked out well. However, we have all these tools at our fingertips these days. You know, where we can we can take a, you know that's just so much as putting out an, an emergency alert, but setting up geofencing, for example, mm-hmm. to capture people that are in and are coming in and out of your alert area that may not already reach our new system. Uh, we're capturing you know cell phone signals or GPS signals where you can get an alert out to people that are even just driving through your county if there's an emergency for that matter. Um, you know, artificial intelligence and detection stuff and and algorithms to try to detect where you know, where, where an issue is where a person shouldn't walk towards or be able to walk away or using 
beacons to guide people away from an emergency, away from a hot zone. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that we're doing right now, which I find fascinating. And like I said, I'm having, a, you know, aside from traditional stuff, which I still very much enjoy, um, the technology stuff, it's, to me, it's just, I'm learning something new every day. It's phenomenal. And it's uh, very underutilized, I think, in our field. Well, I think it's going to grow. Number one, the the new EMs coming up behind us, they they, they grew up on, on, on technology. And they Absolutely. Just, They're the millennials. That's going to be a whole different game with you guys in it. Right. You know? And then think about this. I mean, we're, we're moving into self-driving cars, moving into um, self-driving tractor trailers. <laughs> we're moving into, you know, into this stuff here. And, and um, interestingly enough, uh, Mary Jo Flynn, who's from Sacramento, uh, County uh, uh, EM, um, she um, she does a whole thing about technology and emergency management. Uh, she's a really techie person, but she also goes into the fact that we have to plan for you know these things because when there's a large scale fire, um, sometimes the the GPS issues get all all jacked up. They're pushing people into where the fires are, and if we don't understand that and know how to get in front of it, we could actually have people driving with their their GPS and it says all oh, the quickest routes this way and they're going yeah. into the danger zone instead of out of the danger zone. And so we really need to get in front of that. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I've seen, you know, I'm sure you've seen the videos too. They're all over real Facebook and YouTube of, you know, people in Northern California trying to escape from the area and driving through these, you know, these fields that fires blazing next to them and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's like, it's amazing. And the fact that we can see that these days too, which, you know, five years ago, unless you were in there, you had no concept of what was actually going on. Right. But yeah, to try to find the technology where not only could find, you know, not only where GPS can say, okay, the best, tra- the least traffic is this way, but to realize that it's least traffic because you know the roads on fire. For example, <laughs> right. You right. Know, that's you know that's that's something that's, that's a step we need to take, and I don't think we're quite there, but we're closer than I think we think it is. Um, like within the next next five years, we're going to see a big revolution in, in technology and emergency management, I believe. And even you mentioned self-driving cars. You know, something as simple as a windshield survey post-disaster. You know, what I mean, to be able to send, you know, like, a, like an equivalent of a Google car, you know, into a, into a debris zone. You know, I don't have to worry about someone getting hit. The car's not going to get, you know, step on a live power line. It's not going to get, you know, trampled by a falling tree. It's not going to, you know, not going to drown or fall off a you know, cliff or something like that as a person, you know what I mean? I, I, worst case, I lose a car. I don't actually right. lose a live person. I don't expose a live person to the, the, the dangers that I don't need to expose them to. I can get the same information, you know, and if I, you know, for remote control, a camera on the roof, I can probably get a better 365, 360 view than I would if, uh, if I sent somebody out there, you know, looking for themselves. Well, you know that, what I mean? So again, that's well, right. I mean, think about drones as well. Exactly. Think about the drones. And, and I don't think about drones because it's, it's weird using the national capital region. There's restrictions on airspace around here, as you can imagine. So drones aren't that prevalent uh, around here for that reason. Um, but yes, the, the application outside of the national capital region is huge for, for such things. Right. I um, mean, I'm going to say, take a look at some of the footage that they've given us already from the, uh, um, you know, from the fires up in Northern California, even even in, in Malibu. You know, when they mm-hmm. when they throw the drones over there and, and getting. Again, if you're using it, and when I talk about using drones, I'm not talking about having, you know, lay persons use the drones. I'm talking about piloted drones that the uh, yes, of course. Uh, yeah, emergency managers and, or somebody in that, mm-hmm. that field using. They're using these drones, and again, you're putting, you're not putting a pilot at risk for crashing. If we lose a drone, we lose mm-hmm. a drone, and we can, we can replace that. It's easier to replace 
equipment than it is to replace people, you know. So we're not losing humans into that area, but we're still getting that intelligence. And probably, like you said, probably even better than having eyes on because we're getting a 360-degree view of this thing mm-hmm. at the time, and we can even stop and zone in on things. So that's I think it's important, and I think that as emergency managers, we need to embrace the, the new technology that's coming up. Absolutely. Uh, a for its efficiency and B for its safety factors. I don't know. And I would truthfully, I would rather have a planner in the EOC doing, you know, what they need to do there rather than having, you know, driving through a potential, you know, a, a, what could be a potential fire zone. You know what I mean? Like, it, you know, like in taking Northern California as an example, you know, an area where the fires have just been put out, there could be, you know, under, under the debris, there could be fires still going, ready to, you know, to kind of get going again no matter what. You know what I mean? You have somebody there that, that you know, is doing ritual survey and the fire all of a sudden erupts again. That's a bad scene, you know? It's, uh, and granted, it would be, you know, they wouldn't be sending in, you know, a junior planner. It'd be someone who's trained in those situation. But even still, a life is a life. You know what I mean? No matter how trained you are, things happen. Right. Um, I'd rather lose a car <laughs> if yeah. it came down to it. I'm right know? there with you. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, so if somebody was trying to get a hold of you guys to, to learn more about what you do, how could they find you? Well, there's all kinds of ways. Actually, first and foremost, our website for the triage group, uh, uh, group.com. Um, if you want to email me directly, Tony A at the triage group.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash triage group. We're also on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And we also put out a biweekly newsletter. Um, not nothing we do. We, what we do is over the course of every two weeks, we try to find articles on, 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 on not only just emergency management, but we also do work with transportation and healthcare, uh, of cutting edge stuff that we see that research that's happening, of discussions going on. And we try to get as many people as possible to kind of extend the conversation and show new ways of, of, of thinking of these things, as you know, consultants should be apt to do. Uh, you can sign up for that from our, from our Facebook page or from our Twitter account as well. Um, you know, aside from that, we, uh, you know, we, we do as much outreach as we can. We're doing, you know, stuff like podcasts and then being on panels and stuff like that. Um, personally, I'm starting, uh, I'm writing an emergency management field operations guide, slowly putting it together in my lack of spare time, but you know, <laughs> I figure it probably could done the next time. <laughs> By the time I'm 60, it might be finished at the rate I'm going right now. But, uh, you know, that's something that I've, I've always kind of wanted when I was, when I was in the government side of the business and I never really had, yes, you know, there's, there's fogs for fire, there's fogs for police, there's, you know, for all for all for all emergency services, but except I haven't found a decent one for emergency management yeah. uh, that kind of covers the gamut. Having one page, a one a one book, just quick reference guide. So you know, I guess that's one of those things. There's a side project that you know, between work and kids and all kinds of other stuff, it kind of gets done. So at the rate I'm going, it's about half a page a week right now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> when, when about sixty, they'll probably be finished. But uh, I'll let you know when it's actually done. I can, I can um, completely understand that for sure. <laughs> no, it's what it is. Just what it is. Um, we're also starting a, uh, actually, I'm teaming up with a buddy of mine. Uh, his name is Spencer Hawkins, the emergency manager for uh, Bibb County down in Macon, Georgia. Uh, we're starting our own podcast at the beginning of the year uh, called Inside the EOC, which, you know, I'd have to have you on at some point, too, if we actually get to that point. Sure. Uh, so, it's, uh, it's uh, so we're doing a lot of cool stuff right now. And, uh, you know, we I, I'd love nothing more than to, you know, talk with other colleagues and, and, and trade ideas and, and, you know, how we can all work together to make emergency management better, more efficient, uh, better for the people that we serve and safer for the practitioners. All right, here's the hardest question of the day. What book, uh-huh. books, or publication do you recommend to somebody in emergency management? You know, funnily enough, it's not an emergency management book. Um, it's a, uh, because on the consulting side, I'm also doing work on, you know, I, there's a good amount of sales involved. 
too. I've actually been consuming a lot of stuff like that. And I came across this book called The Rise and Grind by, um, by uh, Damon and his last name just escaped me. Uh, the guy from Shark Tank, Boo Boo, um, oh, yeah. John. So and, and the book is, it's actually a sales book technically. Well, technically it is a sales book. It's, but it, there's so many applications to emergency managers in that book that, that it, it's, the parallel always amazes me. And I do recommend to emergency managers, not so much for the sales side of it, but it just reminds them that we have to make with, we have to, we have to succeed with sometimes nothing. We have to be MacGyvers in our field. We have to adapt at a moment's notice. Have a like, you know, and, and even if we think we've got it all figured out, we need to have three or four audibles sitting in our back pocket just in case. And even that point, be ready to improvise. And that's, that's Damon's point in his book overall in terms of how to create sales and how to create opportunities. But it's the applications of emergency management, I think, are, are exactly the same. Because when it comes down to it, what it is, you know, and, 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 and no matter how rich a jurisdiction you work for, at some point, it's going to be a resource you, you need and you can't have or you don't have. Uh, and you have to make do or you have to figure out a way around it. And that's really what it comes down to with emergency management. You know, we're the MacGyvers of the group. It's, True. Uh, we've got to figure it out no matter what. And that's, I would recommend that book for that reason alone, to, to emergency managers. It's also a pretty interesting book, too, hearing his story and everything like that. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. Right. He does have a good story, though. That's for sure. You know, He does have a good story. Pretty much, start, you know, he started with nothing and kind of worked his way up. It's a very American dream kind of story, but it's, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. It just illustrates the man that took advantage of opportunities. And when he didn't have the opportunities, he made them. Right. Um, you know, and that's, that's what emergency managers need to do. And same thing as well. You don't have, you know, the resources, you create a workaround and that's what it is. That's what we do. So. <laughs> that's so true. That is yeah. so true. So is there anything before we let you go that you'd like to say directly to the emergency manager out there? You know, it's a tough job. It's a thankless job at the end of the day. Because when there's no emergency, you have a council member or a senior leader or something like that saying, well, we haven't had a hurricane or an earthquake or a fire or something in a few months. Why are you here? You know, I say you got to stick, you know, it's, it's, it's courage and strength. And then and, and explain that the planning process and the preparation process is just as important, if not almost more important than the response. Mm-hmm. In the off times, if you're not practicing and you're not refining your response efforts, when you do need that, it's not going to work the way you want it to. And it's actually going to go backwards. And at the end of the day, if these same elected officials are going to be hearing from the people, why did the emergency managers do what they need to do? Or why did it not go well? And for them to say, well, you know what? We didn't fund them because there was nothing going on. It's not going to cut it either for them. So it works for them as well. You know? But for us, for us in our field, it's, like I said, it's a tough job. It's, it's many times a thankless job. But it's an important one. And, you know, it's a job that after we do it, at the end of the day, no matter what happens in an EOC or in a response, you know, we can all lay our head down on our pillows and we can sleep well because, you know, we've done the best that we can to save the people, to help the people in our jurisdiction and, their, you know, and, and, and save life and property. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Life, especially, much more than property, but that's part of the game as well. So. All right. Cool. Well, Tony, thank you so much for, for being here today and I'd love to have you on again sometime. Yeah, I'd appreciate that very much. I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you very much for the chance to uh, to share my thoughts and my stories with you and your audience.